0: Today on Acid Horizon, we welcome Dr. Gregory B. Sadler of Dr. Gregory B. Sadler fame to join us for a reading of Fanged Numina by Nick Land. We use the concept of machinic desire to guide this discussion. However, we take various tangents and look at various aspects of Nick Land's work, its implications and its impacts. Also, thank you to all the patrons who have provided both financial and moral support to us as this podcast has grown. This month, we will also hold a patrons-only seminar on the philosophy of Michel Foucault. We will look at his essay, The Analytic Philosophy of Politics. Subscribers at the $5 level or above can join us online at the time of the seminar any subscriber can access the recordings furthermore we are currently supporting an art space in louisiana called yes we cannibal together we collaborated on a design for a t-shirt that they are selling to help support their space i put a link in the show notes go ahead and check it out or check out our merch store CritDrip.com. also in the show notes if you are new to our show find us on twitter Instagram, or subscribe to us for as little as $1 on Patreon and access some special recordings in our patron RSS feed. Okay, with that said, let's get on to today's episode on Nick Land with guest Dr. Gregory B. Sadler. Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. Today, Will, Matt, Adam, and myself, Craig, have the honor of reading Nick Land's Fangnumina alongside the inimitable Dr. Gregory B. Sadler, a figure in the world of both academia and para-academia, who has been a vital and precious resource of online philosophy education. You may know him from the copious philosophy content he has put forward on YouTube and elsewhere. If you're a philosophy student or you have been, it is likely you have rushed to Dr. Sadler's digital domain for primers on the many philosophers he has graciously gifted to the masses. Thank you, Dr. Sadler, for taking time out of your weekend to make this happen
1: oh you're very welcome thanks for having me on and that's uh quite an introduction i hope i can live up to a bit of it i'll actually say something uh you know it it looks from the outside like i've covered a lot of thinkers and topics but it's sort of like a a spectrogram you know when you look at an element there's all this black space and then there's like a line here and a line here and that's that's the way i look at the the video channel there's way more gaps than there is coverage Mm -hmm. and i'm always hoping somebody else because i'm a bit lazy i'm always hoping somebody else is going to come in and fill in the gaps (laughs) you You, you actually have to admire the uh, i'm sure all of you uh you know know of and listen to the history of philosophy without any gaps when when that first came out like 10 years ago more than 10 years ago i thought oh that's going to be tough to pull off you know because anytime that you start working on something you start finding all these other areas right that that it could lead into a million different rabbit holes and you know people get tired of uh doing work and so i was like ah this might make it two three years tops and He's still chugging along, you know, and going going through each area. Um, it's it's remarkable how much they get done. But when they get into like the nineteenth and twentieth century, ooh, that's going to be tough right? because right. I don't know if there's enough time to actually explore all the twentieth century thinkers. So.
0: Well, the very first thing that I want to do is give you a chance to just talk about anything that you're doing. Recently, I went on your YouTube page and I saw that you now have a Basics of Stoicism course. Maybe you could say something about that.
1: Oh, yeah. So the Listenable platform, you know, I I get probably twice a month I have a new platform reaching out to me saying, oh, you know, make your make your courses on here and and uh, I did that early on, and then some of them went belly up because all of them were going to, you know, revolutionize education. During this time, we'll talk about capitalism and, you know, market forces and stuff like that, and we could actually use some of those as examples, these graveyards of digital content that are out there. And so I'm always a little leery, and I got into conversations with them, and um, as like most of these startups, they have kind of a skeleton crew of people, but they, they seem like they were, you know, on point and so I was like oh, okay I'll, I'll, I'll try a course with them And it was actually kind of an interesting experience for me um, just from a recording perspective because I don't use I don't use scripts. Mm. I I do everything, you know, I get up in front of the chalkboard and just start, I've got some things on there and I start talking or if I'm doing a book review, I've got, you know, maybe a page of notes total. Um, And so I don't, I don't read a script, but for this, they wanted me to put together a bunch of scripts and then to record them all in one single marathon session. So the sound quality (laughs) would be exactly the same. Man, is that tough? Oh, I'm sure. You know, um, you, you get caught up and start. Stuttering or saying the wrong word multiple times. But writing a script actually turns out to be kind of a good
0: idea. You know, I, I've poo pooed it a lot. It's taken you this long.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I see, I'm one of those kind of people who could get by without doing something. And then I mentioned being lazy beforehand that's a kind of laziness right and so learning how to write a proper script is you know it's a good it's a good practice to get into and so so i did that and yeah i produced this uh this course and then it's interesting as well because when you're producing these things you never know if they're going to stick you never know if they're going to get traction or not because mm. some of these platforms are great at talking themselves up but they're lousy at actually getting people to check out your content and if i have to like you know post my content all the time that's me having to do more work and i don't like to do that so you know i i've been very happy to see that they really have their act together and i'm going to produce some more courses with them the next one is actually going to be on something super simple it's going to be um Words in philosophy that mean one thing in philosophy and mean something else in popular culture like Epicurean, right? You Mm. know, doesn't mean stuffing your face like a pig or, you know, being snooty about wines or anything like that. Or what is it to be a cynic? And I think stuff like that can be quite, quite fun to do. So yeah, there's that going on, and I'm teaching two classes this summer, getting ready for for fall classes. Um, I shot and I actually broke down and shot videos on the trolley problem uh, article by uh, uh, Thompson, which I'll be releasing pretty soon. Um, I've done trolley problem memes before, but I, I never <laughs> actually like taught the trolley problem in class because it's ubiquitous, right? So. Right. So i thought my my milwaukee institute of art and design students would probably get a kick out of it so we we actually did it and then i don't know what else i mean milwaukee right now it's a great city to be in you know uh some of you probably aware that we we might our team might win the the nba championship they're going to be playing just four blocks north of here in uh two days two days or three days. And, um, it's kind of pulling the city together in in nice ways. Um, so that's kind of cool to, to see, you know, I don't have any hand in that, of course.
0: All right. Well, just (laughs) tell me one thing. What's, what's the good bar or place to eat in Milwaukee? I mean, there's all sorts of them. You know what you
1: should do if you want to get like the old school Milwaukee experience. I mean, we, it's interesting. We have a food scene that is drawing international, um, attention. Um, in part because of all the things that have been going on here on sort of under the the radar so if you want all the trendy modernist cuisine you can get that here but you want to go to a supper club
0: oh okay like
1: a real supper club not not you know so you want to like go online and uh if you read like on milwaukee or any of those other kind of magazines they'll have like lists of them and then you you just find the one that's closest to you that you can get a reservation at and pop over
2: i was just going to add two things one of them i need to get off my chest um first is that i thought there's an entire generation of people whose entire introduction to philosophy was basically trolley problem memes um it must be like a generation out there where they just see this meme and then they go okay but actually is it is it a meme or is this actually a, a problem worth thinking about yeah um The other thing, and I I needed to say this, was I think this must have been a couple of years back. So I've been watching your your videos for for years, actually. Um, And I've often sort of turned to them when I need to encounter some new philosopher. And I need in like three or four videos just to get like the basic sense of them. And so maybe a couple of years back, I was just starting to read uh, Deleuze. Okay. I'm really interested in his thought. And I remember, I think you were doing like, um, a YouTube Q and A or chat sort of thing. And, um, I knew that in the past you'd expressed interest in sort of some, some sort of French post-structuralist thinkers and so on. Um, and I remember, um, I asked you if you were thinking of doing any videos on Deleuze and I immediately knew that I was being that guy. (laughs) (laughs) I was being that guy that was like hassling you about like, which, which thing is he going to do videos on? When is, when is it coming? Um, so sorry about that one. (laughs) No, no, that was, that
1: was kind of a common thing in AMAs, um, I'll say something too. I, I like Deleuze as a thinker. I don't really like Deleuze plus Qatari. Mm, right. I
2: find, it,
1: I, I find him popular. to be, you know, they, they, they really loved each other. It's very clear and, and. Deleuze thought that he was a great influence on him. And I I see it almost like the opposite. So I want to, you know, if I, I, like I did some Deleuze videos recently from essays, uh, critical and clinical. Okay. Yeah. And I'll probably do more of that and probably get into, you know, logic of sense. Um, I don't know that I'll, I mean, maybe I'll do stuff down the line on anti oedipus but I don't, I just don't, you know. Well, we'll talk about that in this. I, yeah. I just don't like this freewheeling, yeah. like, throw everything out there kind of. Yeah. I think he's
3: more rigorous when he's on his own. I, know?
2: I just needed to get that off my chest as a <laughs> apology for being that guy. <laughs> I
3: mean, uh, that's the Hegelian answer, isn't it, usually? I mean, if all the he- people who've studied a lot of Hegel, I see, who've read uh, Deleuze, Guattari, think, well, you know, just Deleuze. And it's like, well, this Guattari guy kind of messes him up a little bit. But this Deleuze guy, I mean, he's basically one of us, Jack, Todd McGowan, like,
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't think you have to be a Hegelian to see it like that. Um, I mean, you could could just like – I mean, Deleuze does some really interesting history of philosophy stuff on his own, right? So I got – I mean, I got introduced to him way back in undergrad – when and I actually did a video about this guy, this Japanese student who gave me a whole bunch of continental philosophy books. Um, he was he was a rich guy. His family was in real estate in Tokyo, so you know he he had money to burn, but he he didn't. He was not confident about his ability to explain things in English. So he was like, here, I'm, I'm writing a paper for this class. And he wrote like a 70-page paper, you know, and he's like, can you, ex- can you present it for me? I was like, yeah, okay. And then he's like, here, you'll need these books to help you out. And it was, you know, like Bakhtin's Dostoevsky book and Anti-Oedipus and some BART stuff and all that. And the, the funny thing was that my undergrad, so this is like 19... 19- you know, 1993. Um, the professors there had no idea what contemporary continental stuff was. They thought it was existentialism and maybe a bit of Marxism. And so it was a real it was a real fortuitous thing that this guy threw these books in my lap because I wouldn't have been introduced to them, uh, otherwise. And then, you know, I went on in grad school and I read the, the Nietzsche book that Deleuze Luz has and, you know, the Leibniz book. And I was like, well, this guy's really, really quite good. You know, it's clearly not, not straight Nietzsche he's presenting or Leibniz, but the stuff that he has to say is really, really cool, you know? And then there were Deleuzians, at that time mm. and you could count on the Deleuzians to be like the really weird wacky guys <laughs> always guys all, 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 no, there weren't any women uh uh speech comm or philosophy students into Deleuze at that time and um you know i, I I'd, I'd hear them talk about stuff and i and i'd be like i'm not sure if we're reading the same
0: guy you know
3: <laughs> and speaking of weird delusian guys <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> that brings us to the book, and I, I, I know who Dr. Greg Sadler was, you know, ever since I saw his first videos, and then when I saw that people had pushed Nick Land on you <laughs> online, I was like, you know what, people were pushing, like, when are you guys going to do the Nick Land episode? And I, did, yeah, I didn't yeah. want yeah, it lame. bound up with all of the online politics, and when I saw that you were engaging with the book it was like the heavens opened. And I was like, this is the time to reach out to Sadler. With that said, we can kind of kick off our discussion. We centered everything more or less around the concept and the essay entitled Machinic Desire. Although we're, we're going all over the book. Yeah. Uh, how would you present this material if you were giving it to a class of freshman philosophy students or sophomores? Like, oh. yeah, like How could you even do that? Or, or like, what, what's, what's the Sadlerian approach here?
1: That's a, that, yeah, that's a great question. Um, I've been, you know, I'm going to do a review of Fang Numina and that's going to be tough to do because it's such a big book, mm, right? Yeah. And, and there's so much really different content in it. And then I thought maybe I would do like pick a couple essays and do some core concept videos on it or something like that. Um, but if I was teaching it to a class, I think I would have to adopt a different approach um, most of the students that I have are not they're, – they're the most challenging students. They're not graduate students. Graduate students are super easy to teach. You basically just throw stuff at them and have them do some presentations and, and then, you know, nod and say, oh, you missed this thing over here. You need to understand this, and they'll lap it up, you know. But teaching undergrads who are not philosophy majors and have no intention of majoring in philosophy and don't have any background, that's, that's where the real um, – that's where where you really have to work hard, and for you know there's so much kind of presupposed in these essays mm-hmm. coming from multiple fields that I think part of what I'd have to do is like figure out what do I want them to read before coming to this that won't break their minds you know and take up half the semester um, but they you know I mean they definitely have to read a bit of Kant and some Schopenhauer and some. Nietzsche, and that's just the earlier stuff, mm. right? Um, maybe some some Bataille, Um, and then then we gotta start getting into like where is all this other stuff coming from as we get deeper and deeper into it. Um, so we'd have to you know we'd have to draw on other fields. What does he mean by cybernetics, for example? I guess you know, it, it would be helpful that it, since he makes reference to things that are historical events and he makes reference to, uh popular culture to you know like direct them to that like you know when he's talking about philip k dick okay that that's kind of a known quantity out there that some of the students in in a given class might already have some exposure to if only through seeing um movie versions of of Dick's stories right so yeah i mean and then there's there's also like some and maybe we can do some of this in in this this uh session there's also some of like the contextualization like what is this guy really after in writing these things and why is his style the way it is um i was i'll admit when i when i first started reading this and and i and i started reading it because the publisher sent it to me because um one of the people saw online that i said hey if somebody wants to send me a copy i'll i'll review it um i was kind of disappointed when i first started reading the essays because i was like well, what why does this guy have such a mystique about him you know what i'm looking for what the special sauce is like you know when when there are some philosophers like hegel for example or spinoza around whom there's a similar mystique people use the book as a a referent without having actually read much of it because it's supposed to embody something like the phenomenology of spirit for Hegel or the ethics for Spinoza. Schopenhauer's World is Will and Representation, I think, is another one that people carry around more than actually read. And you can say, okay, well, what's the shtick here? What's what's actually going on when we do read it? And when you, you know, Hegel, nobody reads him for his Great style, or anything like that. Whereas you can read Nietzsche or Schopenhauer, or even Spinoza to some some degree. Once you get past the weird, more geometrical stuff, you can read it for its its weird, wacky style. But there's a lot of interesting, worthwhile stuff going on in the Hegel. And when I read through the first couple essays, which are you know a bit more, you could say mainstream. Um, I was like, well, this is just typical continental philosophy stuff that we used to do at you know Spap or other um, venues and and publish in journals back in the nineties. What's what's so special about this? I mean, in, in in Kant Capital and the prohibition of incest, okay, talks about apartheid, which is you know a bit a bit dated, but but kind of a cool application. Um, there, but you, you say, well why do people think this is such an amazing text? Mm. And then you read on and you start seeing, um, you, you get deeper into it, you get to like Machinic Unconscious or the, the essay that that precedes it, right? And you're like, okay, well here's where the Deleuze stuff is really coming in hard. Now now it's no longer like Bataille and Schopenhauer, now it's it's Deleuze and Guattari, and where's he going with, with this stuff? Um, and I, I think that's something we really do have to talk about is this just um you know basically like the equivalent of artist statements blown up, cool stuff to say and read? Or does it does it pertain to our our existence, our our future, you know, what are what our possibilities for agency or self-development are? And I think the answer is, well, kinda of, sometimes it is, and and sometimes it's it's uh blind alleys um i guess knowing why it's blind alleys is is good and then and then you get to kind of i mean it, this is probably going to tick off some of your listeners but you get to some of the the stuff towards the end and and you're like ah oh, come on you know like the <laughs> yeah. the uh zigalothic ex-coda cooking lobsters with jake and dinos and you're like oh, I, I see what you're doing there but
4: it's very edgy, Mr. Lamb.
1: You know? <laughs> yeah, well, it was edgy once. But, you know, if you've read Avatar Ronell's stuff before that, she was doing lots of mm. cool monkeying around with, you know, the code and, and all that, making her books, you know, non-standard sizes. And, and you know, y- there's, there's a limited mileage you get out of that, right? Whereas um, some of the stuff... Like I, you know, my favorite piece in the book is actually this one, um, and I don't know the history of it because I haven't researched it at all. But the one where Barker speaks—yeah, it's fun. Did was Barker a real person? I don't, I don't actually know. It's a great piece, you know. It, it's sort of putting us humans in the context of the uh, planetary development. Um, let me throw this question out there, this, since I don't have an answer to this: How did this guy wind up? with this kind of aura or mystique that allowed it to become important that he then moved to China and became a neo-reactionary? Why did, I, why did people care?
0: You just made Adam's day, by oh, the way. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah.
3: I, I, mean, I have a lot of answers <laughs> to this question. Um, the thing about Nick Land, or oh, could he's just a guy on Twitter now, Nick. The thing about Nick is that he, he came about in this kind of moment in which the internet was just the kind of thing people, it just died out the idea that we could enter this new space into this very horizontal kind of new online space of anonymity, which no one had ever seen before. In which yeah. You could, you know, tear yourself apart into these new personas and that, you could rip identity apart. And during this period at Warwick University, he started up with uh, Sadie Plant, who is a great philosopher in terms of, you know, the ones and zeros, her book, the messing about with code, you know, yeah. a keep bit better in land in some respects. And they were doing this idea of trying to experiment with, New forms of culture in the wake of this sort of grand flattening that was happening in the wake of cybernetics and its growth into the internet and new forms of electronic music like jungle and stuff like drum and bass and stuff like that. And they was incorporating both theory and fiction. So DC Barker is a fictional entity, but they're trying to speak something through him. They take a lot of influence from like William S. Burroughs and the idea yeah. of the ghost lemurs of Madagascar, and they had this whole thing about uh, – Lemurian lemurs, people from a land called Lemuria coming from the future to tell us about their gods. And... But essentially, what we get to see with Fang Newman is a man getting gradually more into this dissolution of himself through the Internet. And then towards the end, we get to see, and there's not really any, way of, any way of saying this. He was on a lot of methamphetamines at the time. This is well recorded. A lot, a lot of amphetamines. You could see a sort of descent into this self-dissolution of the cybernetic culture, and gradually. I mean, even his lectures—you see that there's always these fantastic stories of his lectures where he would come in, and just turn on some jungle music, start screaming into a microphone over some noise, on rolling about on the floor, and then apparently someone stood up and said, "You know, some of us are still Marxists," you know, and walked out. And You get to see this gradual descent, and there are some artistic statements in there, so cooking lobsters with Jake and Dinos, that's um Jake and Dinos Chapman, who are friends of this cult, uh, cybernetic culture research unit, and they they did the cover. But you get to see land in this moment of great cybernetic opportunity, where all of these market forces are producing the internet, producing cybernetic yeah. culture. Siberia refers to a chain of um, a chain of internet cafes, the first in the u k. Started by um, a weird libertarian uh, sect called the, the, the Revolutionary Communist Party, you can see him sort of getting absorbed into all of this, and it's building up until these—he's losing himself in the fiction in a way that comes kind of predictive, and so you see this in the meltdown because it goes two—it fa- gets you all these years in sequence, then it ends at two thousand eleven, then dot dot dot. So he's he's sort of playing with the Mayan prophecy somewhere. He thinks this great yeah. flattening is coming, this Blade Run society. Where the revolutionary replicants take over, the problem—the problem with all of this—and I think this is where Nick became more than an NRX person—is that it didn't happen. Some of it did,
1: but it didn't. But it didn't happen. So it. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. But I mean, a lot of it d- didn't happen in the way that he's talking about. I mean, I, let me, let me sort of like recontextualize it. So the stuff that you see happening in here and all the stuff that you're saying that he was, he was doing in these stories. So people were doing that sort of thing in Carbondale, Illinois around the same time and that wasn't any place special that was just where i happened to go to graduate school and there were artists who were doing kind of similar goofy performance things you know um and and we'd you know host philosophy conferences where there'd be some serious papers and there'd be some stuff that's you know you're like well this is clearly just this person working out their life problems using using some theory in a rather arbitrary way and then everything in between. And I, I think you can see similar kind of stuff going on in here. I mean he's, he's dealing with some really fascinating ideas like well where where the hell are we going and does capitalism have any limits to it and he's bringing in, you know, heavy hitters like, you know, Deleuze and Guattari or Bataille or other other thinkers to talk about this uh, stuff um, but it all seems kind of flat and and just strung together for me. I, I'm not one of those like where's the argument kind of guys? you know I'm willing to like let let a text go for a long time without that. but when you just kind of throw stuff together, I want to know why that particular stuff is thrown together. And that's what I'm missing in a lot of this. So so like here here's here's a from machinic desire, right? Um, he's got this section where he says only proto capitalism has ever been critiqued, and I was like, "Well, that's not true. Um, it's it's. I mean, we critique capitalism all the time." But I can get what he's saying in that we're, we're always criticizing past forms of capitalism, even when we think that we're critiquing like the most present form. Like, you know, if we look at what if we, we get really granular and we say, all right, what kind of shape of capitalism are we in now, given that? Um, not only do we have insurance companies screwing things up for people's medical stuff all across the, the way, but hospital groups, because of deregulation, can be- become these gigantic entities, which then are owned by venture capitalist firms, right? So that's like a real question Absolutely. about what, what stage of capitalism Absolutely. we're in. And the very fact that we can say, well, that's what's happening, and here's how we got to that, and that's bad for these reasons, but also potentially good for these reasons, we're still talking we are talking about a past form of capitalism in that we can formulate, it. but it, but it sure is hell isn't proto capitalism. You know? And then, you know, like he goes on and he says to appeal to extrinsic interests, aspirations or bonds to have an extrinsic authenticity, integrity, or solidarity to authoritative community, tribe, custom belief or value. So when you, I'll finish that sentence, but notice what he's doing there rhetorically. It's this, this trope where you, you string together all these cool words, And I'm not saying that it's all bullshit or anything, um, because they could actually have intrinsic connections with each other, right? But those have to be established. And that never happens in, in any of these pieces. And then he goes, is to rail against a germinal anticipation of comoditocracy. Commodity, There's a word he, he uh, makes up. Flailing ineffectively against the infancy of the market, which capital wants to bury too. Socialism has typically been a nostalgic diatribe against underdeveloped capitalism. Okay, so you can be, read that and you'll be like, well, yeah, that's, that's true. A lot of socialists and Marxists are aiming at the wrong targets. Um, that's that's clearly the case in in a lot of cases, and that's why, you know, Marxists infight again with each other about what their target ought to be. Um, I don't know about the commoditocracy. I don't know what that that actually
3: means. It sounds cool, but I think I can explain it to be honest. I think I think the commodity form is so I think fundamentally all of this is a critique a big critique of Kant. The commoditocracy is the form of the object as, as such. And his whole thing throughout all these pieces seems to be attacking the Kantian transcendental and the way it is fundamentally trying it's productive. It's imminently productive, but it's always self-limiting. It's uh, always restricted by this Residual humanities, residual form of government, which hasn't been fully.
1: I think by that time he's way past Kant, though. You know, I mean, you you can say that like that, like, and he he does say that it originates in Kant, but then what Schopenhauer and Nietzsche are doing is adding to it, and and with with Kant, you've I mean, he, he'd be better to target Hegel in that respect. You know, with Kant, you've got these um, essentially a priori structures that we can delineate, and it's all very static. Um, and plenty of people have, have critiqued it and then said, no, no, history, uh, where we are in history matters. Hegel's one of the first to do that in a coherent way. I mean, you can say that sh- that Schelling is doing that and Fichte is doing that too. Um, and then the, the question is, okay, what, what does condition where we are, right? And so by the time that you get to a guy like land it seems like he's saying okay all all the previous people including Deleuze and guattari who are still too humanistic for me mm-hmm. they're they're kind of right and they're kind of missing out on what it is you know as, as we go further into it it's it's capitalism and then ai that's at the end right as the the limit condition for us to go back to like well what would you tell students i guess that's that's part of what you could try to tell them and then they'd probably by that point their eyes would be glazed over
2: though i i read this passage the one that um you were just uh quoting from about um extrinsic interests authoritative community tribe custom belief i feel like in a way this paragraph sums up at least the way that i read um nick land's work which is that in a certain way he, he he starts from a reading of anti Oedipus and a thousand plateaus but where where deleuze and guattari are going to insist that every Deterritorialization is always followed by a re-territorialization. Capital will, on the one hand, you know, um, drain you of any kind of um, traditional religious um authenticity, but then it'll also find ways of um rehabilitating those views and selling back to you basically in a certain way. If Deleuze and you are going to insist that you know each deterritorialization is always followed by a re-territorialization, I think Nick Land is going to say, firstly, like, what if it doesn't? And secondly, what if that's exactly what capital does? If it just continues to, um, towards a- basically absolute, de- absolute deterritorialization. And that's basically the point of, like, um, the redundancy of humanity, the point of AI and singularity and so on. It's kind of this reading of Deleuze and Guattari, but you kind of take one strand of it and go all the way with that rather than, you know, the way they, yeah, I guess,
1: I guess when I think about that and I try to imagine what these terms are referring to in, in social processes, I find them like super abstract. And the, the one thing about like total detortilization, that would just be meaninglessness. There, there's nothing there, you know, other than, you know, it, I mean, that, and that could be a catastrophe that we wind up with, with, you know, whatever it's going to be like total, complete machinic desire, um, which has nothing to do with humans. But then who cares? You know, we're we're not part of the picture. Um, it's and, and the other thing, it seems to me like this it, with Deleuze and Guattari. Um, there's this valorization of the nomad and deterritorialization and all this sort of stuff that was was really easy to to latch onto at a time that was quite repressive. You know, and people would read it, but I, I think in a lot of cases we're like. No, I, I actually want some more re-territorialization. Like, I'd, I'd like to know where the hell I stand, you know, when um, I can't actually get a mortgage, you know, and why why is it I can't get a mortgage?
4: That was a lot of, like, Lacanians' responses to, to anti-Oedipus. As, as a lot of them in the 80s read it and they were like, doesn't it kind of, don't you kind of want that comfort of your territoriality, right, within that triangle mm. after you read this and the yeah. model of de is like, well, it's that of death, right?
1: Yeah, and and I think w- this is where like, I, again, I, there's a valorization of it. And I think it, it would have to get more, you'd have to act like, is this a good re-territorialization or a bad one? Then you have to figure out what the criteria for that are. And that kind of goes out the window. And w- I mean, with, with with land, it seems like there's almost like a fatalism about it. Well, you know, this is going to happen. And Whereas with the loser Gattari, there's more of a let's do this <laughs> kind
0: of, kind of uh, imperative to it. Um, well, we were reflecting on, uh, we just saw this stray passage from The Logic of Sense getting passed around on Twitter recently, and it really factored into our reading of of Land's work recently, which, uh, in view of what Deleuze says in Logic of Sense, I mean, either Nick is kind of just going his own way with these terms, or he made an error in in interpreting Deleuze. What Land ultimately presumes or presupposes is that all that solid melts into cybernetics. What cybernetics will do and what the, the technical domain will do is melt down all social code and, and so forth. But what Deleuze says is there's a third term. There's a gap between the technical and the social, which is, and, and for Deleuze, in Logic of Sense, he says it's almost like this interstice where the the revolutionary lives. There's a space that between that which is deterritorializing and that which re-territorializes. There are things that we, as a society, we as individuals, we as as agential entities, or what have you, we have this capacity to say no. We don't have to affirm this constant deterritorialization. that what Deleuze and Guattari are doing is they're articulating a sort of functionalism. They, they're not implanting any sort of ethical axiom, as, as we might understand it in Kantian terms. They're, they're kind of giving us the sort of blueprint, the outline. This is how this works. This is the way that capital works. And if we're forced to accelerate with capital— it might provide us with the impetus or the sort of deboarding point to take that, that schizoidal energy and then turn it into something else rather than, okay, we just have to follow this thing all the way. That's not what Deleuze and Guattari are saying.
1: Yeah, and I think that there's many ways of saying no. Um, kind of reminds me of like in, in what is metaphysics when Heidegger is talking about nihilation, right? And he says it's not just negation negation <clears throat> negation isn't even like the most um, paradigmatic mode of bringing the, the in his case the nothing to bear right there is also refusal there's there's you know sort of resentment there's all these different things that one can do and that's just in the negative range i think when when you think about reinterpretation of um capitalist deterritorializing processes there's a lot of ways to at some point you know it doesn't just have to be like the the, the big money investor who gets to decide how these things are applied or worked out people people find ways to um, turn them into things that weren't intended by the the designers or the investors um very often they're just kind of swept along of course i mean you think about like what what social media um did in in um you know suckering people onto it and i'm I'm certainly somebody who uses social media Absolutely. a lot so you know, <laughs> i'm not criticizing in the sense of being puritan here but um you know it's there to sell us ads um and we know that um the algorithms to determine a lot. And we have no control over those. But, you know, we can we can decide, you can still tinker around
0: with your settings, you know? Within a limited range, of course. You asked a little bit
2: earlier about, you know, how did this how did this guy become this huge figure where, you know, he has this strange sort of early history and then and then it gets even stranger, right? Because he goes up to China and then he sort of reemerges as this sort of neo-reactionary figure and and yeah. so on. And the only explanation that I've been able to uh, come up with, which joins up for kind of the Nickland of Fanged Numina, and the Nickland that, you know, is out there today on, on Twitter posting, is that to the extent that much of Fanged Numina is concerned with, see where capitalism is going in the future, um, although we certainly have things like AI much of the time, you know, when you think of AI like it, it's like Siri on my phone or something, right? It yeah. hasn't reached anywhere near the sort of stage that even Land thought it, it would be by his point. And so the problematic for Nick Land, I think, becomes, well, if that's what the process sort of if the process wants to do more than that, what is it that's sort of getting him away there? What's stopping it? And so Nick Land reemerges, and his answer is basically democracy, hence filling over straight straight over into neo-reactionary thought, where um, democracy in particular is this issue of uh, cutting off some of these processes before they can be fully uh, expressed, I, I think. That's, that's the best reading I've been able to give. I mean, it's always easy to... you an option is just to say, well, there is no connection, right? It's just a different... Set of ideas, um, you know, early Nickland and late I well, Could
3: I develop like, on that, just in the yeah. historical sense? I think there's a historical path you can trace on that logic. I'm sorry, I think because you can talk about the idea of there's always a reterritorialization, and I think in sort of the, the in a set, the failure of this great flattening that happens with the escape of the market into cyberspace, the deterritorialization was there in the creation of the internet and these new spaces, this vast, great new sort of jungle. You know, pun intended the music. But it was re territorialized in places like Silicon Valley. And I think that's where he, Nick has thrown his lot in with the neo reactionary crowd. Because the fundamental argument of the neo reactionary position is well, the only thing we haven't applied the market to is the production of states itself. So in order to finally unleash the market forces into their highest position, you need to apply the idea of markets to the production of states. And this is where you get the neo-reactionary slogan, par excellence, which is no voice, free exit. You have no democratic voice, but you can exit any time you want. And it's the idea of the democracy of the consumer. I mean, fundamentally, the problem with this is that it tries to reject hegemony, organization, governmentality, but it just, it just it maintains the governmentality of, of um, of exchange as such. But I think you can definitely see this element of democracy. Yeah, democracy is this final limiter, is its final residual kind of humanism that restricts the productive power of, I mean, for me, I think it's the Kantian transcendental imagination, this thing which posits all the categories, all these syntheses, but then Kant reels it back. To possible experience. And you can trace this developmental power, even through people like Shelling, in which it's no longer really part of us, and developing through into a will to power, the machinic unconscious, the desiring production, which is this intelligent, self-positing, self-reaffirming kind of technology, and then expanding it into all its lovely, marketable, dissolving frames until we get to the final re-territorialization, which happens after this book, which is the tech billionaire. And this is why it's such a popular ideology among certain strands of, of technological thinkers today. I mean, you definitely see this trajectory throughout Bland's book to, confirming just exactly that sort of hypothesis you are putting out there, Matt.
2: Yeah, and I guess it links up with the, um, the chapter on the critique of transcendental miserableism, right? Because this is sort of the challenge that he uh, <clears throat> poses to... Um, I, I'll, I'll say the left, but frankly, it's, it, it's frankly posed to anyone who isn't, you know, exactly on his side is... Um, well, if you think you know, if you have a problem with you know with capital, with capitalism, if you have some leftover beliefs in Marxism, communism, socialism, etc., um, where do we go? From, where do you go from here? Then you know he sort of raises really you know what's what's your route out? And you, um I just want anyone really who want to sort of set up that maybe there's a connection there between some thoughts we've already had on land and that particular chapter. If anyone wants to chip in.
4: There's a strange sort of tendency with Nick Land where like, you know, in preparation of this episode, obviously, there's always a really important sensitivity you have to have with engaging with this guy, frankly, because it's like important to contextualize his work around this um, more contemporary manifestation. (laughs) <laughs> of of his p- political philosophy. And uh, what frustrates me when I read this, and it could just be like my own philosophical insufficiency going into it, I I, I find myself sometimes overwhelmed by the positing of all these different conceptual frameworks that he jumps from uh, perpetually. Um, and again, I'm not a give me an argument kind of guy, right? Like I'm a Foucault guy, like I'm, I'm fine with these really continental uh, things. But uh, on one end, th- I, I am made to believe that the techno capital singularity is already here right it's already being delivered to us by the model of the clinical schizophrenic as an, a figure a conceptual figure that comes from the from the future um, that that is already decoding all of these flows uh, that already tends towards the singularity but then at the same time the uh, the human security system is what's thwarted this. The human security system all throughout Numena, looks like it perpetually can't do anything. It's entirely inept. It it fails to protect the pod. It um, it, it fails to maintain the Edipal triangle. And yet it's democracy that stood in the way of this. I, I for for me, it, Nick Land's entire career is just it's just f- conceptual framework failure after failure after failure, Even in this more right wing manifestation, it, it, like. I'm supposed to believe that this is what's what's preventing it. I, I, at that level, I think sometimes I I struggle to to find it compelling, even though philosophically it could be very fascinating.
1: I kind of think that when we're talking about democracy here, it's being used as if it's a univocal term, when really it's it's not even an analogical term. It's it's got several different meanings to it because if if what stands in the way i mean to begin with there's there's another thing i want to say i mean how how the hell do we know it's going to be a singularity and not just a bunch (laughs) of other rival things you know like like it's always been through history why why this belief in i mean he he criticizes theistic frameworks but you can't get more theistic than talking about a singularity um but let's say that there is going to be, like, some some big process and AI is behind it and capitalism is the way that it's, it's managed to get its, its hooks into everything. Okay, great. So democracy, if we're talking about that in the sense of, like, you know, robust um, lived, you know, experience in which – almost like a dewey you know, like if John Dewey had his wet dream come true, you know um, – well, that doesn't exist. It didn't exist in Dewey's day. That's why he was arguing for it all the time. And it sure as hell doesn't exist in our day. So that's clearly not standing in the way. And then we've got sort of like local operation of, you know, what we could call, it's not it's not pure democracy at a local level, but it's a lot closer to it. Like if I want to go to a Milwaukee uh, Common Council meeting, now that we're out of COVID mask time, I can, I can walk in there. And before that, I could get on their Zoom calls and, and be a pain in the ass to them. I'm not a Common Council member member, but I can have participation that way. Is that what's standing in the way of this this great thing? Well, that only exists at certain points, and most people don't get to to indulge in that, so so, what is democracy? Is it is it conterminous with this thing that he's picking up from Moldbug and calling the cathedral? Yes. No, because it's not. <laughs> it's not because because the cathedral is is just sort of like the elites, and then it trickles down, right. and they get to tell us what to do, and that's not democracy. That that's a, a form of all sorts of hegemonies, and that's the way our political system. Basically, works most of the representative seats are not competitive. They're like soaked in lobbyist money, and people who go to the right schools. And there is there is a you know political class that's got different flavors, Um, and then you get you know mavericks like like Bernie every once in a while coming along and you know thumbing their nose at it. But they're they're largely ineffective. So is that what's standing in the way? I mean that. He, he, you know, the cathedral does get identified as what is standing in the way, but that sure as hell isn't democracy. So what's, what's the boogeyman democracy that's, that's actually getting in the way here? Is it that people get to vote on things that don't mean anything? I mean, when, we, when I teach business ethics, we talk about um, voting with your wallet. We, we get a lot more chances to do that than we do any sort of political vote and that's much that's much more widespread cuz you could be in a totally non-competitive place like um Idaho you know which which isn't going to go Democratic anytime soon, or Massachusetts, which isn't going to go Republican any, anytime soon. And you can buy your, you know, um, if you're in, in Massachusetts, you can buy your ideological coffee. You know, I forget exactly with the black rifle or something. <laughs> that's right. And if you're in Idaho, you could buy, I don't know, a bunch of Bernie dolls or something and line them up around your place. Um, that's, that's where you actually have a lot more agency. Is that what's standing in the way? No, it seems to be like... Part of the capitalist process, you know.
4: It seems to be though too that like that, that uh, t- to to bring it back to the cathedral land in the early two thousand tens will be pretty sympathetic to that whole blogosphere, right? And he'll play a big role there. And there are still figures that are popular on the internet that that you know uh, ruin the many a decent grad student. But um, <laughs> um, and so he'll be sympathetic, but like you still kind of get that here when he's just talking about. Basic market regulation, right? With a real ire um, in in machinic uh, desire, you know, pa- yeah. passing references in 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 circuitries, and then clearly in in transcendental miserableism. Um, so I, I think a lot of it really is just uh, there are all of these these systems that are both completely inept, right, in the face of of the deterritorializing power of capital, but also uh, at like actively standing in the way, so it seems uh, to to be like a really a really strange combination.
1: Doesn't I mean doesn't doesn't capital basically go around them though, when they stand in the way? They stand in the way of one mode of of capitalism, and then there's like some other thing on the side that comes in, which they're
2: cool with. I mean, I know Adam has something to say, but I wanted to just expand a little bit. because I was, I was one who raised I raised the question of democracy, and I need to I think I need to say a little bit more though about that because land doesn't like say this explicitly um but if you read and i don't recommend this but um the manifesto that he wrote about the the dark enlightenment um which is oh i read that was actually
1: i think that was one of the first things i think that i read by him not registering that it was land that's his sum up of yeah. Mold bug, right? Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um yeah. If I, last time I, I checked this, I just don't. I just went control F on it. There's something like hundred and thirty references to democracy <laughs> in that <laughs> and the vast majority of them all at the start, like his first question really is of democracy and how we can get away from it, basically. Yeah. Um, it's all about liberty and libertarianism and the development of capital. Um, it's less explicitly like cybernetic and futurist and so on as as than you know, it's less fat than of his. that's the only way I can sort of try to piece together what's going on in the early land and then the later land and see there's some kind of continuity there is there's just some there's some kind of force which is getting him away here and mm-hmm. he needs a program to be able uh, which is capable of getting rid of it that's my only my own thought I mean is, is is
1: the force there if we think about democracy in a very broad sense as needing to get consent of people and working that out through so like deliberative means, right uh, rather than just focusing on voting, being on juries, all those sort of like prerogatives of democracy and we think about it more as a a process, is it that well these these damn people with their you know, different points of view, you know, you got to convince them of things. Wouldn't it be better if we just got, you know, if, if they were just told what to do. So you got, you know, like the, the, um, sovereignty principle, or if they don't do it, then you don't pay them or, you know, you drive them out of their houses. Then you got the, the market, uh, point of view.
3: Is that, is that what you think is going on or? It's the first one because okay. the, the whole, pr- if you turn to D the D, the Barker speaks, he, Barker's sort of entire scientific thing is undermining what people think of as the need for subjectivity. It's this idea of the subject from *Antigone*. It's it's really just something residual that isn't particularly necessary to the actual power underlying it. And if you, yeah, in the Dark Enlightenment stuff, his problem is is that it's all about the voice. It's all about people producing, you know, competing to brainwash each other. It's not really yeah. a, it doesn't represent anybody. Representation is just a, a fiction, and as, as Deleuze also says, and it's the idea that. You waste all this time trying to produce subjectivities. And it's a wasteful way of doing it because you're still doing a market competition, almost like, um, you know, Joseph Valois Schumpeter's capitalism, socialism, and democracy. It's the idea that you're doing a market competing for votes, but actually you're producing the voter. So I think his idea is, you know, given that it's already a government corporation because we have all these lobbyists and we're just trying to brainwash people, why don't we just you know stop doing this inefficiency and just do it directly? You have a governmental corporation, the GovCorp but and you, you have any say in it because it's not trying to produce you the subjectivity it's trying to sell itself to you and you're know, like if you don't like if you don't like it you can leave you know there's still simple as and it's a i think that's where he's trying to go he's, he's he's a hidden hatred not hidden at all a hatred of the function of subjectivity is something that is always very restrictive and binding and I, I, my problem with land and we have to do the last widely is i don't think they quite understand the the plastic capacities or potentials of subjectivity, which I think I think you get a lot of that in Hegel, and so I think, I so I, I, I tend to err on the gem idealist side there.
1: I think you get a lot of that if you have a functioning family life, or if you've ever had a relationship, you know, a romantic relationship that stood more than a couple months, or. <laughs> you- Relate yourself uh, to an animal for for a while, you know? <laughs> um, I mean, it, 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 so if, if this point of view uh, that that is being portrayed by land and and according to you also Deleuze and Guattari, and I think maybe maybe Deleuze and Guattari together, I don't know about Deleuze himself, um, we're right, then we'd be like in false consciousness all the time. We don't really have any idea what's going on. We just sort of like paste together these these bullshit subjectivities that are are always you know in in process. And none of our relationships mean anything. And and actually, all, none of the media products that we produce and consume, like novels, plays, TV shows, because those are all characters who are subjects none of those mean anything either it's a pretty drab world you know um and and it makes you you know going back to that that last essay the um the miserableism one, you know, he he's got this this thing at the end where he says um, the transcendental miserableist has an inalienable right to be bored. Of course, call this new; it's still nothing but but change. What transcendental miserableism has no right to is the pretense of a positive thesis. Um, well, who? who's who's he to say that you know i mean if the, i mean i don't i don't actually so he's criticizing the marxist dream of a dynamism without competition was merely a dream and yeah, maybe so but that doesn't mean that everything is just utopian fantasies um and and maybe you know the notion of like having a decent relationship with a other person that doesn't have to be just you know, thrown aside as, oh, you're, you're being, you know, I mean, here's here's the, the retort you give. Oh, you're being crazy. You're being silly. You're being naive. Well, there's me there, right? And we don't have to be like Cartesian, you know, uh, about that. We can just say, well, you know, it's an intersubjective me. And uh, yes, it is. It, you know, I live in a capitalist system. And yes, I do live in a world that's permeated by the internet. But yes, I'm also still a subject.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, to be fair, to the Deleuzians out there, I will say this, is that, um, like, at least in terms of the family, for example, the risk, of course, is to succumb to the the transcendent figure of Oedipus, to be constrained by that. And in fact, I think what Deleuze and Deleuze and Guattari want is, is to explode those categories to allow for the fluidity of the, yeah, of yeah. the fa- I mean, family subjectivity, but also to acknowledge what actually <clears throat> exists out there, the kinds of family arrangements that are actually in reality.
1: Yeah, I mean, Lacan recognized this. He he says in one of his seminars that the Oedipus complex is at best something that applies to bourgeois families. And if we go into other cultures, we're not going to see anything remotely like this. And I've always thought, I mean, even Freud himself says, well, the Oedipus thing is something you get past. It's not, you're not always Oedipalized. You know, I don't know where all these theorists got this, unless maybe the French, you know, psychoanalytic establishment that Lacan was constantly, you know, bumping heads with were super doctrinaire about, well, you know, I mean, like the, the stereotype, you know, wow, lay on the couch, we're going to talk about how you love your mother. I mean, that that doesn't seem to be, I mean, there you can find families where there is like the patriarch and, you know, this, this very traditional structure, but you got to kind of work hard to to find an ideal family like that most, most of what we've got is, you know, blended together and people where, you know, there's always like an uncle who's struggling with addiction and he's, he's like part of why your family's not not working together well. And then you've got like, you know, political rifts and things like that. Um, And yet people can like, you know, come together and and, uh, family relations can still be felt to matter. You know, I mean, especially if you're poor, you know your family is very often your your um what you draw upon for capital
2: i, I feel that maybe this is again one of those areas where the the sav critique of transcendental materialism sort of reenters the picture which is that one of the things i suppose we we've we've presupposed here is that the ongoing sort of development and unfurling of this capitalist techno singularity etc isn't inevitable, right? There are forms of resistance, of refusal, of perhaps, you know, in a utopian sense, democratic accountability. Try not to laugh. Um, and and these, these options are on the table, right? And I guess what Land is going to um, argue here is that um, if, if, if we still think that capital is within our control, uh, we we haven't caught up yet to where it already is, let alone where it's going. That would be the The land position is that it's already out of our control, and I guess if I was trying to sort of you know defend his point there, I guess you know isn't isn't this the the problem that much for example much of the left right now is trying to deal with is that in an age of globalization where finance capital rules national sovereignty is undermined etc. You know this seems to be the question right? Is how would we be able to subject capital to forms of resistance or control or refusal? Um, so I guess I'm sort of trying to back up. The, but there's at least perhaps something in this in this.
1: Challenge. Oh yeah, I mean I think we can say that that capitalism, as a whole complex set of processes, different in different places at, at different times. We we don't we don't control it. We every once in a while we pull on a lever and we produce some sort of effect, but it is mostly out, out of our control. Um, and and the people who potentially could do something usually don't don't care because they're they're you know happy with it or they they've got their own little quirks that they want to do um i don't see that as that's sort of like saying well you know we live in a natural disaster we still have options within natural disaster what we're going to do you know it doesn't mean that we're inevitably subsumed into it as subjects and i mean we could say that like 99 percent of our psyche is the product of forces outside of our control but we'd still have the capacity to do something with that that one percent maybe leverage it so we can get it to five percent you know and maybe there's maybe there's and and land would be standing on top of that saying you don't you're not even entitled to that one you know? percent
3: as far as i can see you know he, he, enemies too much credit i mean uh- I think the subjectivity is does, is always constantly failing, you know, like spirit in the phonology of spirit, eventually, until it gets to absolute knowledge. It's like subjectivity is in, even, even itself most of the time, and he's, he's thinking about these subjects always being recuperated. And this is, I think, where you get Deleuze is a bit more optimistic than Land, or well, much more optimistic, and that he's trying to seize these processes of making subjectivities, you know, like in a similar like, way that Hegel's trying to seize the concept, which the seize the process of subjectivation, the production of subjects en masse, and then, like, really run with it whereas land is like you no know, this this production is wasteful he leaves a bit of this residual productivity out of the way because i mean and you can sort of see this in the internet stuff because you do lose yourself in the rave the jungle if you do lose yourself and i think there's that literally an ecstatic moment of being out of yourself which he's trying to tie into And i think the reason why he's so big on the internet is because he ties into that affect of getting out into your screen for a bit but I think with Deleuze, you need to take back a bit of yourself because otherwise you give the enemy too much credit. I mean, you do have a choice. I mean, that's probably yeah.
1: of me, but yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting with Hegel's phenomenology. It's it, You're right. It is a record of failures and then how to get past some of the failures. And some of them mm. remain failures, right? Mm. And it's also um, a document that is sort of like survivorship bias, encoded because it only describes where there's been an advance and hegel himself thinks that in most places at any given point in time where a particular dialectical dynamic is not is is being enacted it doesn't Mm -hmm. succeed and people stay stuck at that point in time that's i mean and his his philosophy of history is mostly you know uh, yeah, it, it's it's pretty crude. And, and it's also, you know, really racist. Mm-hmm. And, and there's there's all sorts of problems with it. But mm-hmm. I think he is right that, you know, th- we get into backwaters, right? Mm-hmm. It's really easy to, to look at the to read through the phenomenology. And you're like, Oh, this is amazing. I, I read through this mm-hmm. whole dense book. Now I understand at least like how Hegel thought things happened up to about 1807. Um, that's, that's a real accomplishment. But you th- you think about like, well, what does Hegel think about um, Spain? Well, mm-hmm. Spain managed to proceed up to a certain point, but they didn't go through the French Revolution, and they're basically just a, a cultural backwater. You know, what, what, is, what does he think about Italy? What does he think about, it's basically, you know, the nation states of France, whatever's coming together in Germany, you know, under Prussia, Austria, Bavaria, uh, England, and maybe the United States that Hegel seems to, to care about. I was going to say, so I mean, with with land going going to China, is that is that part of where you're going with this? You know, like, well, you know.
0: It- I was going to kind of bring it back and and say that you know there there's a very apparent irony uh, when we look at the the whole history of Land's writing here in in giving up and poo pooing subjectivity whole cloth in favor of this inhumanism. He ends up. Affirming the most crass inhumanism that has underpinned the Enlightenment project, and shot back to this eugenicist mode of thinking—you know, a, a form of sovereignty that's akin to to Hobbes's vision of the world. You know, like, is this really where we want to end up? I've cast a pretty broad stroke here, but I, I think that's that's what we get at the end—a valorization of a, a form of governance, of a form of domination that demands the subjugation of a kind of inhumanity. There's a very strong interpreter of Deleuze named uh, Claire Colebrook. I'm not sure if you've looked at any of her work. An essay by her that I go back to quite often is one called Face Race, where it says, in order to establish the humanistic project of the Enlightenment, what was required was a subjugation of certain kinds of humans to be put in the cast of inhuman, you know, as we get with slavery and as we get with a colonialist project. And that's exactly what we get with land. I mean, he even wants to overcome the sort of minarchism that the, that today's libertarian would advocate for in the wake of not being able to achieve that. He goes full fash slingshotted all the way to the far right.
1: You know, this is a bit of a digression. So when I first read Mensis Moldbug, um, I was like, well, this isn't really very new at all. Um, I mean, it's it's adopted for an internet age, and it's talking about some some newer stuff. And he came up with his own jargon, but this is not pre- this is not different than traditionalism, post-revolution in in French writing with you know De Maistre and De Bonald and people like that, or Um and it's not that different than like later later thinkers along those lines, and. Um, The same, you say the same thing with like, a more popular figure like Steve Bannon, um, he's basically Charles Maurat, who was a, you know, uh, he became important by riding the Dreyfus affair and organizing Action Française, which is a proto-fascist organization in France. Didn't call itself fascist, but called itself integral, uh, integral nationalist, and provided a blueprint for what we often call fascist regimes, which actually called themselves integral nationalist in, in other places. Um, and you see this with a lot of these—I uh, don't know what to, what you want to call them—neo reactionaries, alt right. They're not, they're not doing anything that's radically new. They're reinventing a wheel that's that's been around really since the French Revolution. Um, it just takes on different terminology and different um, stuff. And 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 so for Nick Land to lapse into that. With the addition of like saying, well, you know, China is the place to go for this. Um, it's sort of, I mean, I, I don't want to say that this this stuff was like the, you know, the voice of the future or anything like that, but but it seems like a real, to use a word that they would use, a uh, real um, degeneration or real um, decadence. I mean, not, not not that is a tangent. <laughs> so.
0: Now's a good time that we can kind of start wrapping it up. Um, I would like to know, uh, from you, Doctor Sadler. First of all, Greg, thank you for coming on the show. It's it was sure, yeah, super yeah, awesome yeah. to thank have you. So you. And in fact, I would love to have you back at some point for something else
1: to talk about somebody who I've <laughs> exactly
2: to talk
0: exactly about. <laughs> exactly Hegel episode. Yeah. Please, it's yeah, been yeah, so long. yeah. We'll do a Hegel episode, and uh, you and Adam can um, okay, cool, be, be yeah, good friends. Um, but um, what what for you is the big takeaway from this? I mean, it. Phil philosophically ideologically like what can we grab onto and like use in our own philosophical project.
1: Oh that's a that's a great question. Um I you know there's there's not an awful lot here thematically that I can say okay this is something that because I'm I'm a philosophical eclectic, right? A, sort of a Ciceronian eclectic. I uh, it's not a smorgasbord eclectic where i'll take like little bits of everything and somehow cobble them together and you know like french bricolage it's more systematic so like there's stuff i like from the stoics or the aristotelians or from you know lacan or people like that and there's there's very little that i can say that i found in here that's going to become part of my toolbox or my is going to get sucked in because it seems like a lot of the stuff that's particularly good and on point that doesn't have to do specifically with late capitalism or cyberspace is already there in the people he's referencing like bataille or like nietzsche or people like that um so why not just go straight to the source on on them the thinking about um what are we going to do in the next you know in, in our lifetime Um, maybe, maybe I've got another, uh, uh, 40 years or so. I think all of you are a good bit younger than me, so you've probably got maybe another 70 years or so. What, what is the world going to look like? Um, how are we going to, um, make sense of things? Are late capitalist processes just going to get worse and worse and worse, um, Add that to you know climate uh, climate change, which is going to really throw a lot of things into to crisis, and the you know revolution of AIs and logistics and um, uh, robotics and what he's calling cybernetics in here. Um, those are those are things to think about, um, but I don't know. You have to think about them through Nick Land, you know. What do you, I mean, what do the rest of you think about that idea? That he's raising important topics, but he's not raising them in the right way.
0: The sources that he is drawing from, Deleuze and Guattari in particular, I think are important here because I think their philosophy has brought to bear in many ways. We haven't seen, um, you know, we have seen capitalism cover the earth, much like a Sherman Williams paint yeah. can, right? And it seems like there's no stopping. <laughs> so um, I think as people invested in finding a, a kind of politics that are going to overcome the inadequacies of parliamentary democracy, of of the kinds of localism that we're trying, and the abject failure of globalism as we see it now, we do need something else. And I think um, Deleuze and Guattari do offer some important tools for that. And I'll say this in, in all fairness, you won't see me defend the real Nick Land. However, I will defend Fang Numena insofar as he is an excellent interpreter of Deleuze and Guattari, at least on the point of the body without organs, the death drive. I mean, this is like top tier secondary literature on that. And I think there's a way in which we can fold that analysis back into our reading of Deleuze and Guattari and people like Leotard and so forth. And, you know, even carry the failures with us and the Sort of hegelian sense of things very good i knew adam would love that but anyway you know that that being said i i think there is something valuable for the readers of duluz and qatari for sure um I, I mean just nick land on his own here there's there, there are parts of this book where i'm just like hell yeah you know but then we get to critique of transcendental miserableism and i'm like i don't know man you know there's
2: <laughs> well i've got a thought which is but i guess what i, what I always take away from nick land at least in at least in Neumann, is that so if Marxism and obviously not every Marxist will necessarily agree with this, but if we take a kind of if Marxism take Marxism takes a sort of stages view of history in which we proceed from certain determinate modes of production one to the next, and at a certain point we hit capitalism and that's what we have now, and then at a certain point we you know raise ourselves to a higher level and reach um, socialism slash communism. Obviously, they're going to disagree on even that capitalism per se. Um, I think Nick Land sort of asks the question, which is that if we've lost the belief in a kind of teleology of history in this sense um, of this um, development through distinct stages, that um, then I think Land sort of poses the challenge of, and in particularly in the critique of transcendental minimalism, what would a post-capitalism look like? Um, which is, I think that's, that's sort of the challenge that he raises is, is that um, one of the, one of the sections about he, about that, that chapter he says um, or claims that the left have given up the idea that they could be a more productive, um, you know, form of society. And that's why they don't, you know, well, we didn't want growth anyway, now, now it's all about ecology and so on. Um, I don't think he's necessarily right there, but I think it poses a challenge for thinking through um, for anyone on the left trying to think through what, what what is it that we want? Right, what's the positive project here? But um, would have to evolve, um, and that, that's the way I see land. The kind of antagonistic character, sort of pushing people, you know, people like myself, to sort of try and articulate what that would look like and think it through properly. Um, at least if we've uh, most have sort of left behind that sort of view of history. That might be where I see it.
4: I, I think it's simple. I think Nickland is the enemy. Um, I I don't read Nickland as anything other than that. I I find, in a certain sense, that, that like Craig said, there may be some explanatory material, but I'd rather you read Eugene Holland than than Fang Numina. Like I I will push uh, as much as possible against all of the tendencies that are present in this work. And I think that his intellectual and personal political developments are natural byproducts of this work. So I think Nick Land is the enemy. So I've had a long history of reading Nick Land because he has a certain kind of aesthetic
3: pleasure to him for a certain kind of you know, kind of a uh, lover of the goth, let's say. He's a very gothic kind of guy. He's has like the black metal in a way. I know black metal and goth aren't the same, but yeah, he's got like the black metal of theory. He's this, you know, this evil dark side, which has this slightly possibly useful past that you can always tap into. say, so actually now I'm only reading the earlier land. And there's a certain things of land I always love reading. I love his critique of Kant because I like this idea of unlocking the, fundamental, uh, productive power that produces the categories and then letting it rip and trying to make some sort of new civilization out of what the Enlightenment has always held back. I mean, I get it more from certain contemporary readings of Hegel than the land, but I think it's quite good to get into it. I mean, the, the problematization of the relationship we have to temporality is something we find in the critique of transcendental miserablism Mes- here, but it's just as easily find in Nietzsche's Dustbake Zarathustra. Land, for me, is mainly someone who people go back to, or I go back to, really, in looking at his his uh, philosophical descendants, Mark Fisher, Reznor the Cyclonopédia, the post-exeratious milieu, which find their roots in land. I think he has a lot of value in going back to them for that. But really, I, I think um, a friend of the show, Matt Cahoon, reduces land quite well in summing up as the, the look for an exit. Land is just doesn't like the world as it is and he, wants to find an exit. he doesn't want to find a new voice, a new kind of, a new, and you vote for a new party. He wants an exit and he's willing to go into these very dark Gothic corners that become very aesthetically attractive because they feel like a total outside. But fundamentally the historical moment has gone. The moment of fact, Numa has gone. Siberia was a complete and total. It wasn't the emancipation we all got. There was no great flattening. And in trying to found a new horizontal, horizontality, you know, End of governmentality. Really, he just remains in the hegemony of these kinds of fundamentally capitalist transactions. And I know a lot of people mention this and think, you know, we're, we're coming this in bad faith, but I, mean, I really enjoy reading Land. But it, for some people, Land is like your favorite black metal band. You can point out that there are all a bunch of Nazis who burnt down churches for, for years, and they'll go, oh, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? <laughs> but <laughs> apart from that, you know, you. Read Land. I'm not going to say don't read Land. I think he does a great way of pulling us out of a certain kind of Marxist logic to his extremes. Um, stop giving him attention on Twitter, though. He really seems to like it, and it's just kind of, you know, he's not, he doesn't put do anything particularly interesting these days. Um, stop recommending him animes. For <laughs> God's sake, he has kids to look after. Let him Let, him, let, him, let him just vibe or leave him alone. That's, you yeah. so
0: <laughs> know. Greg, any final thoughts?
3: you know i don't
1: actually have any any particular final thoughts i have a lot of things to think about yeah. <laughs> um but I, I don't have any well-formed uh thoughts to to sum it up um i will say you know it's nice that that out of the blue the um the publisher reached out to me and sent mm. me a, a free book you,
3: you know i always like robin. thank you robin for sending greg the book <laughs>
0: Hey, that sounds good, right? Robin McKay, if you're listening, send me some Urbanomic. We'll take a look at it. Maybe even do a show on it. In the meantime, if you want more Acid Horizon, find us on Patreon. We have an upcoming seminar on Michel Foucault, like I said earlier. Also, uh, find us on Twitter. Find us on Instagram. Support us in any number of ways. We appreciate it. Also, check the links in the show notes below. Our next episode will be an episode of Inner Experience on the work of James Hillman and how that work is being used in conjunction with the idea of mutual aid. Should be an interesting episode in any event. We'll see you next time.